Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. Just following the Classic Fighters air show at Amarco in 2011, I sat down with a local legend there, Lawrence Bunty Bunt. Bunty's well known as one of the guides at the Amarco Aviation Heritage Centre, and he has a lot of stories to tell about his wartime experiences as a Spitfire and Hurricane pilot. Bunty grew up on the west coast of the South Island, and we start with a little bit of his early history. So, where was it you said you were born? Amaru. Amaru, okay. Yeah. And did you grow up there and... and uh... No, I left and it was, uh, when I was there and I went to Greymouth. And that's my hometown really, Greymouth. Right. Yep. Educated there and all that? Yep, primary school there. Went to the 150th a while ago, yep. Went to a secondary school at Nelson, Nelson College, yeah. Was there much in the way of aviation uh, when you were growing up around Greymouth? No. So it would have been quite a rare thing to see in your airplane. Absolutely. Do you remember your first time when you saw one? Uh, well, it probably was in Greymouth, West Coast Airlines, I think it was called. And it was a, a Captain Mercer, who was rather famous. He was there. And uh, I remember my parents flew in separate tiger moths to Auckland because my eldest brother was seriously ill and not expecting to live up in Auckland. And they each had a tiger moth. And Captain Mercer flew my mother, I think, and another one of his pilots flew the other one. So, yeah, that's about it. It'd be quite a trip in those days, though. Oh, yeah, pretty rough. I mean. Yeah. She was some flight. So, so um, what about uh, your first flight? When was that? Oh, that would have been in 1940 at Wigan. Okay, so not till you got into the Air Force then. Uh, it's a, f a funny setup. Um, I applied to join, and must have been in 1939. I just finished left school, and. Uh, while I was waiting for to hear from them, I got a letter from the secretary for air, a Mr. Barrow, inviting me to go straight into the Air Force because I'd only had three years secondary school schooling, and he needed I needed to go to night school to pass the entrance examination. So we were about 40 of us. We'd st actually started the school and I got this letter. I was the only one that did. So I went straight into the Air Force in 1940 under a scheme called ACHAMD, Aircraft Maintenance Duties. So you did all sorts of things. Uh, polished floors, timekeeping, all sorts of things. And you marched to work each morning, we were treated like aircrew, had the white flash, two to a room, had nice bullets, and we worked in the mornings and in the afternoon we went to school. We had a, a school teachers and the, the uh, army. So we had to pass, uh, that was the entrance examination. When we passed that, we simply waited for your course. And uh, soon after I got my course, number 23, and went down to Tyree. And from Tyree back to Hereward on, uh, back to Wigan on Harvard. And I was there before I started the course when the first Harvards arrived. A I always remember a Flight Lieutenant Morphy led them in, because we used to have to, before that there were Ferry Gordons, and we used to have to look after the Ferry Gordons. 
And I, one of the jobs I got was to go out with the mechanic in the morning and <clears throat> get up on the wing with the crank handle, wind up the ferry gordon while the mechanic worked all the whistles and bells and switches. As soon as it fired and was going, we hopped in, got the revs up, held it there, and he went off with another guy like me to the next one. And we kept it, uh, the revs up until the pilot, the instructor came out with the pilot. And then, uh, you probably know, the ferry Gordon had no brakes, so he, when he waved the chocks away, we'd take the chocks away, hang on to the wing tip, and jog top round to where he wanted to take off, and he'd indicate. So you'd line him up with the runway, and he'd wave you away, and away you'd go. And we lay in the grass, and swimming togs, it was pretty hot, and the old overalls, whipped the overalls off and lie there in the sun uh, at the head of the carrier gate. So you, and as uh, each guy came in, you reversed everything. Ran out there, jogged, trotted all the way back, put the chocks on her, hopped back into the cockpit. So that was some guys were time, uh, timekeepers and all that, but that's what I did. Yeah, and schooling the afternoon. An aircraft needed a, a, a check over and whatever. Want to come up, Bundy? Where you go. So you got the flights. And when I came back to Wigram uh, on Harvard's, you knew everybody and boy did they look after you. So it was great. Sometimes though they didn't. Uh, if you were a bit late coming in, you had you got your <coughs> before you could get out of the aircraft, they'd whip it away and and push it into the hang, jam it right in the back somewhere, and you had to get out. <laughs> with your parachute and all that sort of stuff. But mostly it was great because you knew them all. And halfway through the course, they made uh, Wigram the twin engine OTU and uh, Woodburn the single engine. So halfway through the course, uh, we went to Woodburn and I got my wings at Woodburn. Yeah. So in between you would have done Tiger Moth training at... Uh, at at Tyree. Tyree. Yeah. What was that like? Oh, great, yeah. Uh, different climate, of course. But yeah, I enjoyed it. Uh, Dunedin was quite a nice city, I thought. We uh, enjoyed it there. Yeah. Tell me about your first solo. Oh, no trouble. <laughs> it just... They just say, uh, right out, Bundy, she's all yours. Go and do a couple of circuits, see you later. Simple as that. And away we went. Yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't recall any problems at all or anybody saying anything in particular. Can't remember how many hours. I think we all did round about the nine. Might have been a shade less or a shade more, just depended on circumstances, weather and serviceability and that sort of thing. Yeah. And did you have any uh, interesting adventures or mishaps or anything in the Harvard stage? Absolutely none at all, except that when I was uh, nearly finished the course and Tyree, one of the three of us that had flown a particular tiger moth were called into the CO's room and he said, tiger moth, whatever the number was, has been damaged, which one of you did it? Well, none of us said, no, didn't do it. Apparently a prop or something, can't remember the details. and. Uh, uh, nobody owned up to it and I certainly didn't damage it because surely to goodness when you came in the gown crew take them straight away they'd have noticed and said well this guy did it so I wonder about the whole thing but I do know that when I got to 
my final stage is that uh, must have been, anyhow, he's, he was flying on the Lewis and he was on my, instruct, my instructor. When we finished the course and got our wings, only one guy got a commission, a little Chinese guy, nice little bloke. Nobody else got one. And he said to me, he said, you know, you should have got a commission. I said, why is that? He said, I put you up for one. And he said, you know why you didn't get it? I said, I've got no idea. He said, because of that aircraft accident. So, wouldn't know what truth was in it or anything else. And it didn't worry me because we we're all sergeants anyway. Went away together, yeah. So when did you get your wings and... and in June 1942, and have you been through the aviation centre? Greg Caldwell was the CO at Woodburn in June 1942. And I didn't know all that about him till I started as a guy. Uh, and so when you uh, went away, after you got your wings and everything, um, when did you leave for England? Straight away. We had, a, I think, a couple of weeks, 10 days holiday, 10 days off, and uh, uh, then train up to Auckland and uh, left from there on the Dominion Monarch. Yeah. Okay. And we did duty on that, on the Beaufort Gun. Night duty on lookout. Because we were unescorted, she was a pretty fast boat. And, uh, yeah been a luxury liner and converted to a troop ship and we went uh, through, the, through the Panama Canal to Canada. Got off the boat at Halifax. Had a week or two there, they were very kind to us. A couple of things that always make me laugh. We'd never seen Coca-Cola before or a jukebox. And they had both the Coca-Cola, which we thought was terrible, and the jukebox was there, you put nickels in and whatever. And I still remember the, what this thing played. And it was, don't sit under the apple tree with anyone else but me. And we played it over <laughs> a big, uh, you know, well-lit jukebox thing, yeah. And we were there for... I think just on two weeks. I've actually kept a diary, so I've got all the detail, and of course I've still got my logbook, so I can't tell you exactly without looking at that. But two weeks approximately, and we were going, went to Canada, we were going to be the first Kiwis to fly American fighters. <clears throat> at the end of a fortnight, I said, back on the ship, fellas, and we went back on board and went to England and didn't fly. <laughs> Americans. And we landed at Bournemouth, and uh, soon after that we went to a place called Rednall, which is in Shropshire on the border of England and Wales, and uh, did our ground training and SWAT and all the rest of it, and flew miles masters from the back seat to give us an idea of the big long nose on the Spitfire. So I think we did about two and a half hours on that, that's all. You went up with an instructor first because uh, to give you an idea of the layout of the land, being Kiwis and not having been there before. And then uh, one day, uh, it wasn't very long, week or two, and straight to Rednall, uh, which was adjacent, and Spitfires, Mark 1s and 2s. And as I recall, um, they had one jacked up for you to operate the flaps and undercarriage so you're familiar how it worked and everything. And um, then one day they just simply said, yes, off in the spit today 
and you have no idea how scary to perform till you get in, start it up and take off. And you just can't believe it goes hearing down the runway when you've been used to all these other things. Gets airborne and away you go. And if you were flying the Mark I, you had to change hands and hand pump the undercarriage. So you always knew who was flying the Mark I because the buddy was yeah, so we did whatever hours we took, I don't know, not too many because they ones as away. yeah. <clears throat> and the people there were very kind to us. It was part of an estate they'd put the drone on and a notice went up on the board one day, any Kiwis would like to visit, ring so-and-so. And I rang them up and I went there with a, another greymouth guy who was with me and uh, called Bluey Ma. And he and I went there and stayed the weekend and oh. Well Bluey is a hard case, that's why he was called Bluey. And we get there and the rover had picked us up at base, took us out there and the car pulled up outside this beautiful big a long drive, you can imagine an estate in England. And out comes the butler. Bluey had never seen a butler before. And the butler comes over, opens the boot and takes the suitcase. He's going to go. And Bluey said, no, no, sir, I'll carry that. And I stamped hard on his foot and said, that's the bloody butler. <laughs> and honestly, you've never seen anything like it was marvellous. They were just so kind to us. Couldn't do enough for us. The lady at the house, I don't think, would have known how to boil a kettle of water. But just, like, you know, had dinner every night and all that sort of thing. And of course, screwed top bottles of beer and the butter would come out and bring those around. And of course you'd think, well, but take it easy start sipping it away and before the butler went off duty and left you to it he'd come round again boy would soon wake up to that would grab the first bowl it off and he'd be round straight away and fill it up again and the beds absolutely beautiful uh, in the morning the butler would come in and say if you expect it down for breakfast Breakfast will be served, sir, at such and such a time. So you knew you expected to go down. But if you're going to have it in bed, the problem they wanted you out of the way, you'd say, now what would you like for breakfast, sir? So and so and so. And, and then he'd come in and say, your bath is ready, sir. And you'd go in and they had one of those thermometers floating in those wooden gadgets, and you could jump straight in, you know it was absolutely spot on. When you came back, your uniform was on, your shoes were all cleaned and set out ready for you. Fantastic. They were just so kind. It was a great break, and we became good friends, and they wrote to the lady of the house, wrote to my mother, and my mother sent her a real Kiwi Christmas cake, which they thought was fantastic. And one of the, the, there was a son and a daughter. The son was in the army in India and the daughter was in the WAFs, I think, a cook. So we didn't meet them, but we always, whenever, or I did, I was the only one that kept going. Uh, and they were just so kind. And then uh, eventually when I left there, the name was Kendall. So uh, when did you get onto a squadron then? Uh, well, as soon as we, we were finishing the, the, we'd just finished this Spitfire conversion course at Rednall. And I always remember the wing commander flying came in took his leather gloves off, sat on the edge of the table 
and said, Chaps, what I would like you bloody colonials to do is to volunteer to go on a Royal Air Force International Squadron. If you chaps always want your own squadrons, how the hell will we ever have an, an international police force? So well, I put the hand up and said, yeah, okay, I'll be a starter. Blue, he didn't. He stayed with the New Zealanders, went to a New Zealand squadron. And we were, as soon as that happened, we were posted, uh, or I was, with a whole lot of other guys, uh, straight out to Gibraltar. So we acted as defence of Gibraltar pilots without being formed into a squadron. But I understand we were attached to 324 wing, and 43 was there, and treble 1, 72, and 91. And then the Africa do started, and they'd taken Maison Blanc, and uh, 43 was there. So we acted as defence at Gibraltar and did all the surface flying like uh, Cyprus U.S. Oh, they were being assembled. They came in crates and at Gibraltar, the grandson took them out of the crates, assembled them all, tested them, and we had to test fly them. So the new aircraft were craft were lined up both sides of the runway and the runway while I was there was being built out into the sea and if you veered off the runway you wrote off 20 or 30 Spitfires. So in between time, just keeping the hand away from Gibraltar, uh, 20 or 30 of us as I understand uh, would fly out to Iran with these new aircraft, land there, refuel and fly on to Maison Blanc, which at that stage the Air Force had taken. And uh, so that's where I first met 43 Squad. And they were on hurricanes then. When you say um, you are flying in the defence of Gibraltar, was there much in the way of the enemy coming over there? None at all. Only one aircraft appeared over there, um, and I remembered this vividly. Uh, it appeared there, and a mate of mine, an RAF guy, shot it down over Spain. And his name was Beastie Holliman, as he'd lost two brothers in the Navy. Ship sunk and everything. We used to call him Beastie, I can't remember why exactly. But he shot it down over Spain and it was confirmed from Spain. That's the only thing. They say that uh, the barrage they put up from there was just about the equal of London. So if they'd ever come over there, because all these guns were placed in strategic holes in the rock and there were tunnels all the way through it. Fantastic place. And the, the rainwater they concreted down one side and the water, all the water spilled down there and was directed down into underground tanks. It was an amazing place. And you could, we got there, you know, wartime and uh, we were too late to get into the harbour proper. So we were outside and the Navy were patrolled the whole night long. And boy, if you put a foot wrong there on to you and depth charges went off automatically all night long and the rock was lit up like a Christmas tree. Didn't put them out. I said to God, what's the story on the blackout? I don't need a blackout. I said, why not? He said, when he comes over, flips the switch, the whole lot's in darkness. And you use salt water baths and we had salt water uh, soap and stuff like that. Incredible place. Yeah. Uh, when you say that that aircraft was shot down over Spain, was there, was there sort of any political issues with Spain being neutral? Or uh, not to my knowledge. Uh, you got to remember I was only a sergeant. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But were you told not to fly over Spain? No. So you could fly over there quite easily? Well, I don't know. None of us ever tried. We were 
so busy, you know, you're on readiness and, and then flying. And when you took a new aircraft out to Maison Blanc, you had to get back the best way you could. It was up to you. And most of the time, we got rides with the Americans in the DC-3 back there, because they were flying pretty frequently back to the rock. And we did that for God knows how long. And then they, they really advanced then, and we moved out there and uh, did much the same thing. Uh, doing a, our practice flying and aerobatics and anything we could and delivering new aircraft. And then uh, still apparently attached to 324 with on that. And then we through Benghazi, Tripoli, the whole lot. We were, saw them all liberated and were there on the first day and then Finally, we were posted uh, definitely to 324 wing and 43 squadron in particular. And pretty well, much straight away, took off for the invasion of Sicily and landed at uh, in the south of Sicily on the east coast, southeast coast. And then Salerno landings and, and um, the next base was Naples. So, well, as I recall, we went in a DC-3 to Salerno, those who weren't the operational pilots. You don't straight away go into operation. And so uh, then we, we got out at uh, Salerno and dived straight into slit trenches because the bombing was there and then. And the next move we captured Naples and we were moved to the uh, a, a girls' school, two-storey girls' school for accommodation and we were on the grass airfield at Naples and uh, operated from there. And uh, of course Mount Vesuvius always had a little curl of smoke out and the way to get to be an operational pilot, you were taken up by the flight commander. And in my case, there were three of us that joined the squadron. We'd been on it a little while, but hadn't flown operations. So he said, now there's three years. You go up with me, line astern. If you're still with me at the end of the time when I'm landing, You'll fly operationally the next day. But if you're not there when they get down, you'll be back to flying school practicing. So, okay, three of us went up, and uh, he was an Argentinian, a, a flight lieutenant, Lang Mason. And he took us up, and I was number two to him, and the other two guys were RAF guys behind me. And we were all still there and getting towards the finish. And he went straight up over Mount Vesuvius and spun out. And we had to do the same. And he kept her going till we were getting pretty close to Vesuvius. We all stayed with him. We were all flying the next day, operationally. So that's how they checked out. And the same guy became our CO squadron leader and I have the faintest idea why but he took a bit of a shine to me and whenever he was flying he liked me to be his number two and he was a great guy and then he became CO and still the same if you're taking the squadron now I'd be his number two and the moment the patrol was over whatever we were doing straight down on the deck and he and I would look for targets and beat up anything. And uh, one occasion he, we spotted a motorbike and sidecar <laughs> chased it. And I was number two, of course, so he was, he was firing and you could see the bullets shooting across the, the ground behind them and finally caught up with them 
better time the guy on the sidecar jumped out. We thought it was hilarious, but it probably wasn't all that funny. But uh, we thought it was amusing at the time. And yeah, yeah, that's what he... And another trick he liked to do, if I was with him, he'd fly one wing low and I'd look after his tail and he'd do nothing but look at the ground and he'd watch for the flashes. And as soon as he saw the flash, we were called rat red. Rat or red, break, and we'd break and the flash, the smoke would appear right there, bang, where we'd been. And when we got down, the old spy, oh, sorry, the intelligence officer, we'd have to go in for a review, and he would pinpoint those on, and then the hurry bombers, hurricanes and stuff like that, and the old Mustang would go in and bomb them. He'd given them all the detail. Like I said, he became the CEO and he was a very good CEO too. And then one day he said to me, I was a flight sergeant, would you believe, well on the way through a tour. And occasionally he had the odd flight lieutenant or FO as my number two. And he said to me one day, Bundy, I've had a gust full of this. Your uh, Air Force don't seem to know where you are or what you're doing. I'm putting you up for a commission. And I went before Air Vice Marshal uh, Broad. Oh, is it Broad here? I think that. Uh, yeah, he's Broady, anyhow, they called him. And he had a, a trailer, and three of us went up, two RAF guys and me, and walked into his trailer and he said, uh, what do you want a commission for, Bunt? I said, uh, I don't particularly, sir, but I think the CO is getting a guts full of me flying around with our officers as my number two. He said, fair enough. I was the only one who got a commission, got it in the field. The other two didn't. Yeah, and that was getting well on then. And we saw the liberation of Rome and all the rest of it and had all sorts of exciting times. And we were, tour expired. Uh, a tour was 200 hours. No way by the time we got on to Scotland could you go past that. As soon as you got to 190 hours, you were considered tour expired. So you had to watch it from there, or the CO did, 200 hours, you were gone. And about half the squadron were tour expired. We all sent back to North Africa on rest, and they got all the new pilots on the squadron. This was just south of Pisa, and they, took, they were late getting away. They were off to the south of France and they were going to land and refuel at Corsica, late getting away, arrived there in darkness, no nope, landing lights, nothing. New pilots, so they put trucks and cars around and lit up the field that way and apparently rode off half the squadron and uh, our group captain was... Uh, Group Captain Duncan Smith, and he's written a book. I don't know whether you've read it, but he mentions all that in his book. He was our uh, group captain for the group, four squadrons. Yeah. And we went back to North Africa. I went to a place called uh, Giannakalis in North Africa, and it was uh, a Wellington OTU. And I said, my God, I'm not converting me on to Wembley's other. <laughs> and they said, the guy said, a flight sergeant said, no, no, you're over there. That's your flight over there. It was a fighter affiliation flight, Hurricanes. And I hadn't flown the Hurricanes before. Nice, fairly new Hurricanes. And uh, that's our job, no armament. Sydney cameras in them, 
and we went up uh, and attacked the Wimpies, the instructor and the pupil in the Wimpy, and used the Sydney film. And presumably they used that to help instruct the pupils. And that was one job. We also had a nice little Miles Magister, a little open two-seater, low-wing monoplane. And one of the jo other jobs I had was to fly the boat of bow fighter instructor down to the beach, land on the beach, drop him off, and pick him up again at the end of the day. And this was the air to ground firing for the bow fighters. And of course, the little Magister was an absolute joy to fly, and you just lifted it off the deck and that's all, stayed low, cleared the fence <laughs> and fly along the, by the canal and the lake. And there were all these uh, felucas. Do you know what a feluca? Yeah? Right, all these felucas. And the Arabs, we always called them wogs, hated us and we didn't particularly like them. And if you got it right, you could go straight at them bang, pull it round a reasonably tight turn and blow them flat over. <laughs> and they'd be standing on the hull shaking their fists at you. <laughs> yeah, so we got up to all sorts of tricks like that, a lot of fun. And finally, I had a brother in the infantry at Casino. We did top cover. I didn't mention that probably, but we flew at Casino. Mostly that sort of work we did, either ground strafing or doing escort duty with bombers. And last night, you rang me up and said there's a great program on TV3 about Casino. And there it was. And I was actually upstairs on that day, escorting. We were doing top cover for these um, Mitchells flying over. And the guy in the film says, Christ, they got the bomb doors open now. And they dropped the bombs. And my brother was, as I say, in the entrance. And they bombed the New Zealanders down below. Miles away from the front line. And I was on top cover that day. <laughs> Incredible. And we were under the American Fifth Army. We went up the West Coast, of course and uh, we were controlled by Americans and they were, they were great. They liked us to come back to base now and again and have a chat and we liked it because American food and after the bully beef and I'm a coffee man and we got beautiful coffee and it was great. Yeah, they really were good to work with and uh, we had the odd stash and on one occasion um, I was a brand new pilot and some of the guys said, oh, there's absolutely nothing doing at all. And we were up that day and I was the new new boy, number two, and uh, we got jumped by 109s. And I was the first to see him. We said, break. <clears throat> and as, we bro as I broke, the 109s opened fire. And they blew a hole in my wing that you could, you know, I could see the ground down below. And one thing we were taught not to do is chase them. That's what they wanted to do. And then they jumped, because they could outdive us because, of, you know, the carburetor and whatever, they could go straight over, whereas we had to turn over and pull down. And they could outfly us like that. But we could easily turn inside them. And we were jumped and I easily turned inside this guy. But, you know, you've, you you can't just be there. If you open your fire there, it's just going straight there. You've got to be over here, you see. So this guy just straight down and gone. And we were left. It wasn't, a, you know, I suppose, in 15 seconds, there wasn't an aircraft from the sky. So I called up and and told them the story and they said, what are you going to do? Are you going to bail out or bring it back? I said, I'm going to bring it back. Gave me a course to steer. When I got back to the drone, the uh, 
uh, you get priority, of course, straight in, and you pass over the uh, the controller so they can have a look. They know you shot up, but just to check your tyres and that, you drop your flaps and your wheels down as part of your approach and you're going over, and they say, no, nope, she looks all right, but you got a hole in the wing, right. So you come in over the feet, and you probably know, Spitfire, very steep, and they turn and turn straight in. You're almost inside the circuit. <clears throat> and the crash stand is on one side, and the fire truck on the other side, and they keep pace with you as you come over the fence. And it can be in the middle of winter, but you're sweating like a pig. <laughs> you haven't got the faintest idea what's going to happen. So you come in and drop her down and she runs along. <laughs> She's a great, great feeling. And uh, they said, that's it, buddy. She's a write-off. So uh, I suppose, well, probably wouldn't be a write-off, I wouldn't think. They'd send it back, put another wing on it or something. Yeah. So they were, they were fives then. Then we got our new nines, Mark nines. And by gee, you, it's incredible the difference. Uh, you notice it, but so does Jerry. Whereas before, they might play with you, but you suddenly get a nine, and they don't want to know you, because the difference was staggering. Really was. Beautiful aircraft. Yeah, so right, that's, I uh, went back there to, uh, uh, we're getting a bit disjointed, aren't we? Oh, so that's right, I don't mind if you go back with Yeah, them. so we back to North Africa and, and carried on with the rest and the, and the flying. And I also flew Defiance while I was there. North and Africa? Defiance, yeah. They seemed to be mainly U.S., there was always something wrong, at least this one was, and, and was used for drogue towing as well, target towing and all that sort of thing. And <clears throat> I roomed there, quite nice, I was a flying officer then, and I roomed with another flying officer, but he was the electrician guy on the electrics and the radio and whatever else they did. And I took this thing up and I said, no, I'm not a, can't get a kick out of the uh, radio at all. And he said, well, look, it's perfectly good on the ground. I said, great, how about you coming up with me? And we'll set her up and then if there's something wrong, you'll believe me. He said, righto, you're on. So away we went in the defiant. Oh, no, wouldn't go. Okay. When I go back, we'll take her apart or change it over completely. I said, good. That's the good news. You know what the bad news is? He said, no. I said, I can't get the undercarriage down. So I said, I'm going to keep trying. Okay. So I said, tighten up your straps just in case, because I might have to take her in, but I'll give you a buzz. So I tried everything in the book, you know, the usual story, and... Uh, all that sort of dive and pulling out and everything, couldn't get it down. And I said, well, I think we're going to have to go in. And then in the meantime, I got down the carriage down, but I didn't tell him. I said, now, we're going in now. You got your straps done up tight? He said, yeah, I'm all set. And he didn't look terribly well. <laughs> so we're coming in. And we're getting just about to the fence. I said, Christ, the bottom's fallen out. How fast can you run? And he never forgave me for that. <laughs> We'd been pretty good mates up to then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, God, that's brilliant. Can you tell me um, about the living conditions in the um, different places you were at, particularly? Uh, I'm particularly interested in, in Italy. What did you mix with the locals? Well, we were at school. That was the best accommodation we had. Never again after that, 
always tense and mud, plenty of mud in the wet season. And the boys, you know, ground stuff guys, jacked up uh, chairs, you know, things for us and everything. I've got pictures, you know, I've got pink kiwis, I think we liked our, our nice warm water and stuff to share and bath. And I've got a picture of me with a 44 gallon drum, cut lengthwise, and the edging uh, smoothed over. And, you know, we'd had no share, nothing. The boys were working on it, so we, uh, I set this thing up, filled her up with hot water, or filled her up with water, and dug a nice little trench underneath it, and lit a fire. And I've got a picture of me sitting there having the bath and the scrubber, and the boys all drinking out of bottles of beer. And I, I took that. Uh, the, I've got a, like a little folder of all that for giving these talks that I was doing. I took it to French Pass and the kids absolutely loved it. And they all wrote to me and I've got all their letters at home. And which one did you like the best? Oh, we like the one with Bunty in the bath. <laughs> and I had my little model Spitfire, model of mine. With, I always had B for Bunty. And FT was the squadron letters, FTB. So I had took that with me. I just got it, and uh, yeah, you know, you could they'd say, "What's this?" and "What's that?" Thought it was great, and they said, "Well, what's this? What do you call this here?" I said, "That's the office. That's where the office lady works, and all that sort of stuff." You say, "What about that's a propeller?" I said, "No, it's not a propeller." That's a fan. A fan? I said, yeah. That's there solely to keep the pilot cool. Oh, no, that wouldn't be. I said, yeah, it's true. You watch the pilot sweat if that fan stops. <laughs> they loved that sort of stuff. The teacher was just so pleased. Because I had to go from Picton to... took me all morning, got there just on lunchtime. And they had lunch prepared under the trees. Everything. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, when you were flying, um, you mentioned over Monte Cassino, was there op air opposition? Were the, were the Germans. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Not a lot. Not a lot. You, you know, the, we called it flak alley. The flak was absolutely tremendous. And our job was solely to keep them away. And that's what we did. We didn't chase them. We didn't definitely didn't go chasing them after them. Just for us to appear was enough. If they were there, and they were gone. They're, like I say, the only real attack I got, we had other dog fights, but nothing like that first one where I was a number two, and now you cop it, of course. But uh, yeah, they didn't want to know us, especially once we got the nines. It's funny how they soon know too. Yeah. Now, while oh, you were asking about the accommodation, yeah, we were always in tents there. Uh, same out in the desert. You dug down so you could stand up in the, in the tent, things. The best accommodation was when we had the girls' school in... Um, at, at Naples, but that didn't last. And we were the only squadron to actually live and fly from Anzio Beach here. And the Americans did us proud there. There was a nice little strip with that interlocking metal, I've forgotten what they call it. The master metal. Yeah. yeah, and she rattles when you land on it. But they, they could uh, put a strip over sand and lay that down good as gold. Five minutes later, you could land on it. So the jerry was coming in at the Anzio beachhead in dawn and dusk because it took us, I think it was 25 minutes to fly from where we were. We'd moved to Gator Point to the, uh, just south of uh, Gator Point on the river there, Gagliano, River, I think it was called, and 
It took us 25 minutes to get there. And in that time, you see, the night fighter would be gone and we had the day fighters hadn't arrived. And Jerry had come in and beat hell out of the place. And again, at the end of the day, when the day fighters went back and the night fighters hadn't started. So they built us dugouts underneath and we had camp beds or whatever underneath the dugouts. And the, our ground crew were taken up by boat, landed at the beachhead and whatever. So we did the dawn and dusk patrols and readiness during the day. Uh, other squadrons would come up and they'd relieve us and we could have a break. But generally speaking, we were there and we, yeah. Well, a little wee pack of cars, used to play patience underneath and some of the American soldiers that come over and have a yarn to us. Yeah. Was the beachhead still quite um, hot then? Were, were you getting shelled? Fair, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the, the cells just surrounding, yeah. Oh, yeah, all that sort of thing. And then finally they broke through and that's where we were finished. And oh, another thing I did there uh, at Angio, the spy said to me one morning, Bundy, can you come over? I've got a nice little job for you. So I went over to his tent and he said, would you take your number two up and look after our little friend? I said, who the hell's our little friend? He said, they got a little spotting plane spotting for the artillery and the Jerry's are giving them a hard time. So I said, right. So <laughs> go, go up there in this little Piper cup, whatever. And I thought, how the hell am I going to do this? So I said to this, uh, the number two, you look after my tail and I'll look after the little friend. I'll keep my eye on that. So I just went round in a great big circle, round and round on the outside. Never had any more trouble. Once we arrived, see that's the point. You weren't there to scrap with them, you were there to keep Jerry away. And I think generally speaking we did. We had other, you know, hurry bombers and all that sort of thing that you could call up and they'd go down and die bomb. But we never had, all the time I was flying Spitfires, it never had it adulterated in any way, no bombs or you know, all that, any of that sort of thing. Just two cannons, four machine guns, yeah. straight out fighter. And it was a good joy to fly, yeah. Did you ever give your aircraft any nicknames or nose art? Oh, well, yeah. <clears throat> you, generally speaking, you'd probably know, a squadron has, they try to aim at 24 pilots, 12 aircraft, so somebody else is flying your aircraft, your A flight and B flight and, and whatever. So most of the POMs were fairly well educated and we got to all saying, wacko! <laughs> so we called ours, wacko, we put a little cloud on the nose and a little cloud and wacko! And with an exclamation mark. And when we got a new split, we'd put another exclamation I think we got up to four of those. Yeah. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> yeah. Have you got photos of that? Uh, of the plane? Yeah. No. no. I only had a box brownie. Yeah. The only photos I've got are, I've got one of us at, uh, at Naples in the wet, but it was a Air Ministry thing. Yeah, I've got one or two of those, I think. Yeah. And so when you went to the um, Wellington OTU and you were doing the fighter... Um, yeah. Was that... Fighter so, affiliation. Affiliation, yeah. Was that your last posting or did you go on further from yeah. there? Yeah, oh, I can tell you, that was really my last posting because I had the most terrible accident. And, uh, yeah... I told you about my brother in the infantry. He was an accountant and he had a family. I was the youngest and first away and he was kept back for a while. Got away in the infantry, 
casino and I had another brother who was a builder and kept back building bridges and priority things and he finally got away in the engineers and he arrived in Cairo when I was at Giannakles so I went down to see him. I think I flew a little Harvard down. That was another job I had, search and rescue. Mark three Harvard and one of my mates in the back and spotting, looking for uh, uh, people uh, down in the desert. Anyhow, uh, went to Cairo, made, uh, to uh, Marty Camp and saw my brother and he introduced me to the, the CO who was Major somebody or other, I can't remember his name, but a Major. And the Major said to me, what about coming back here for Christmas to Marty Camp? And you can see your brother and we'll have Christmas dinner. I said, good idea, where am I going to stay? He said, with me. I put another bed in my tent. Being a Major, he had a pretty good sized tent. I said, you're on. Went back to Giannakles and said to my Aussie copper, who was just uh, finished his tour as well, both flying officers, and said, what about going, oh, great. So I said, I'll get a Harvard and we'll go down. So we booked the Harvard and we're going to set off and the Harvard was US. And I said to Dave, I've got to go. So we'll get out and uh, I'll get out on the road and hitchhike. He said, oh, well, I'll come with you. So we're out on the road, thumbing, big Bedford Army truck pulled up with the canvas over the back and the pipes. And uh, uh, the driver said, yeah, jump in, boys. We jumped in the back and was full of those big uh, fire extinguishers, big red ones with a wheel on the top, all empty, being taken back to be refilled. Great. So we're hanging on to the bar at the back and looking out. And winter time in uh, North Africa, raining and cold, and he lost it on a corner, rolled down the bank, and I got thrown into the Sweetwater Canal. Dave was buried under the fire extinguishers, but the tail was sticking out of the canal, and he was all right. Took him a while to get me out, and Dave for that matter, and we were taken to a a South African general hospital, and I had about two and a half months in hospital. I think it was number 91 South Africa, but I could be wrong, it might have been 90. I've kept diaries and got it all down. So uh, when I got out back to G, G and A, oh, I wrote to Dave because I was obviously going to be there a while. Didn't have much gear. Wrote to the back of GNX and all hell broke loose. They said, your poster is missing. Your, your parents have been nicer. All the lines are down. We have no communication at all. And your parents have been told that you're missing. And so I said, oh, okay. <laughs> Wasn't too good. And they'd gone through my kit and they get any photos and blow them up, as you probably know, and send them out to all the, the military posts to keep a lookout for this guy. Yeah. So I didn't get to see my brother. He went off to Italy and was captured and taken POW. So you were in hospital for quite a bit? Yeah. I don't know exactly, but quite a long time. And I got out, when I got out and back to I was on two crutches and quite a while I wasn't allowed to fly, of course. Had legs and plaster and whatever. And uh, oh, and your legs were like skinny little pea stalks. You lost all the muscle and everything. And then they said to me, um, Bundy, uh, we can't see you flying again because the war's nearly over and it's going to be quite a while before you're flying again and your father is very ill in Greymouth and we think you ought to go home 
and you've done your three years near enough anyhow, I was within a week or two or something, so I went home to England and uh, left from uh, Brighton, I think it was, we went there. But in the meantime, uh, we were posted to a, 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 an RAF base somewhere, I've forgotten where that was. And of course, out in the, uh, on the squadron and desert and that, uh, nobody ever saluted you. We were, you know, silk things to, for neck chafing and all the rest of it. And of course, you get on to an hour after in uniform and they're eating at the officer's mess and all this stuff. And this WAF came along. I'd just arrived there and she came along and I was walking towards her she crashed out to salute like you've never seen. I thought, oh God, I've done it again. Must be a dick. She was saluting me. Couldn't believe it. I thought there's got to be a, an air commentary or something around somewhere and I've missed it. Things like that, you know, it was great. It was just, it was a great idea. To, to wear all that sort of stuff comfortable. Whereas home in England, you see those guys even in the Battle of Britain. They got collars and ties and, and their number one blues on. Yeah. And so there I got to Brighton. We went on the Mauritania this time, which was a totally different uh, trip home. Tablecloths on the table and we waited on hands and foot and I wasn't wonderfully well anyhow, and it got slowly worse, and I was taken, we got to Wellington, and I was taken off on a stretcher, and straight into the Air Force Hospital in Levin. And, oh, you know, New Zealand nurses and whatever to look after you. Now, what would you like? What would you like to eat? Bath, we got the bath ready for you and all the rest of my leg propped up on the side of the bath and brought the phone in. We've got your mother on the line. So they rang great mouth for me and talked to the folks and said, well, won't be home for a little while. So I got home to Greymouth eventually, still on crutches and reporting to Greymouth Hospital and whatever. So I think I was down to seven stone or something. Yeah. But we soon recovered and back to Wigwam again after three months leave. And I didn't stay in. You had the, well, they offered you the chance. But, uh, you know, when you've had that long and all that stuff. So I got out. Yeah. I think that's it. Probably left out the odd thing here and there. Well, it's still an amazing story and well told as well. Well, people, uh, several people have said to me, Bunty, there's a book in that. I said, yeah, but I couldn't write the book. I had difficulty writing home or writing letters to anybody. They said, no, but we could. And three people have said, we'll write it for you and they go away or they go to Auckland or somewhere and you're never here anymore. <laughs> so I don't worry about it. Yeah, okay. What, what do you think was your scariest moment of your Air Force career? Scariest moment? Oh, when you're, uh, when you're only a number two and you're the right tail end Charlie and you get jumped, that's pretty scary. You know, later on, when you're a number one yourself, and you know damn well you can turn inside the other guy. That's all you got to do. Pull around in a tight turn and you're there. I think, yeah, that would be my scariest moment. Yeah. Especially when you're probably more relaxed than you should have been. I think, uh, so long as you keep turning, and looking in that mirror, you can't go wrong. And uh, that's what I was doing. It was scary. And I at least spot them. And they came out of cloud. Yeah. And I knew they would have us on a dive. But so long as I turned, I'd get him sooner or later.
but he was gone just there. Yeah. That would be the scariest moment, I reckon. Did you like flying the hurricane after the Spitfire? Yeah, but uh, I'd soon have a Spitfire, a Mark 9. I don't know whether you ever read Johnny Johnson's book, but in that you'll come to a picture of a Mark 9 and he says underneath it, the best of them all, the Mark 9. Now, you know, he got to be whatever, Vice Marshal or whatever, and he would have flown the, the Mark 14 with the Griffin engine and all that, and yet that's what he says. And I'd love to meet him and ask him why, because I never flew the, the Mark 14. I was down at Wanaka, uh, Tim Wallace used to turn on Fighter Pilots Reunion in the alternate years, and it was by invitation only. And I've got my invitation still at home. And I bet, went to every one of them till they finished. And, uh, you know, I just think, oh, if I could just meet the old Johnny and say, now why? And uh, while I was, oh, what I was going to tell you was, uh, Tim Wallace was flying the Mark 14 when he just about killed himself. And I went to the next one, where he was up in the, uh, an oxygen tent up in the top and uh, spoke to us and whatever. And he comes, uh, usually comes to their, our shows here and uh, in the, in the uh, Gold Pass thing. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, it was, I really enjoyed that. And one day he said to me, because he invited Pilot, fighter pilots from all over the world. We had Chuck Yeager there, you know, the American. And one day the guy said to me, hey, come and meet this guy, Bundy, he wants to meet you. And he was a German and living in Australia, spoke wonderful English. And he said to me, what did you fly, Bundy? I said, Spitfires. He said, you lucky bugger. I said, why? What did you fly? He said, 109s. I said, what the hell was wrong with that? Oh, we all wanted to fly Spitfires. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.